Trenches. Welcome to Reality Check, a podcast for accountants, hosted by Shay Thaya and Rebecca Mahalik. In this podcast, we dive deep into important topics and moments worth celebrating in the accounting industry. This show is brought to you by From the Trenches, Real Life in Accounting. Well, hello, listeners, and welcome back. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Reality Check with Shay and Beck. My name is Shay. I am joined, as always, by the lovely Rebecca Mahalik. How are you doing, Beck? I'm good. I'm very good. How are you today, Shay? I'm excellent. I have been so excited waiting for this CA REM report to come out. I even got a bit naggy on Twitter a few weeks ago and was like, Hey guys, when is this due out? Because it is one of my favorite things, very nerdy, but one of my favorite things to have a look at each year and just, I don't know, validate all the time and effort and impact that I like to put into my work and our work and hope that maybe Taya or maybe Avery might want to be an accountant one day and see where all of that is heading. So we might just jump straight into it, hey? I know you've got it. Absolutely. Earn the clock. <laughs> um, so for those of you who maybe don't know what we're talking about or are not CAs, so every year the CAANZ does a survey of its membership. It's completely voluntary. And each year we see sort of different levels of engagement with that survey, but basically creates a picture of pay and workplace preferences right across the industry. So not just public practice, but CAs in all of their bits of the profession. So what we saw this year was 7,700 CAs did participate. And this is actually a 70% increase on last year, which is very interesting. May have something to do with the engagement some of our friends have been stirring up which we love. And the same as what we saw in 2021, the split of male and female respondents was pretty much the same. So the same percentage, and it also reflected the membership pretty closely as well. What we did see was, again, a similar percentage of respondents in the top two brackets for experience. So CAs that are have sort of 16 or more years experience, about 22 about 20% of respondents were in that bracket. And similarly, again, a similar kind of level in terms of public practice split versus the other pieces of the profession. So like not-for-profit and commerce and whatnot. What else did we see? We saw that the gender pay gap has decreased marginally, if you call $2,000 on average marginally. So I think now we have a gender pay gap of about 48,000 on average between men and women instead of 50, apparently a headline. And average remuneration for CAs. So we don't have apples and apples to compare against last year. So this year, a full-time CA on average earns 150,000 a year. Last year, we have a number of 167,000, but this included full-time and part-time. So like I said, not apples and apples. So yeah, a little bit tricky to sort of compare there. But what we do know is consistently with last year that CAs sort of don't hit that average salary until they are about 15 years into their tenure as an accountant, as a CA. That's a really long time. Just trust that. And while you're rambling off the data, that is a really long time to sit around and wait for your average remuneration. Oh, I totally hear you. And we'll get into 
some more of the detail at the moment, but I know you and I were just having a bit of a lull about how that average pay through the cohort of tenure actually plays out. And I think this year, you know, zero to four years experience is about 77 grand. And like, wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) (laughs) Not 77 grand when I was zero to four years experience. I can do that right now. Oh my gosh. And what else is there? So we don't have as much granular data on the gender pay gap as we did last year. Last year, we had the CA produced another detailed one pager to help us understand more context and a little bit more detail there. But we still assume that that gender pay gap is really driven at the senior levels of profession, which makes sense, I think, even to a five-year-old. So that's pretty much an overview of the data. Tell me, Beck, where do you want to start? What is the couple of headlines that really stood out for you in reading this year's CA REM report? Well, I think the first thing is I'm super confused about whether or not we had pay rises or we didn't have pay rises because the data, like you said, is not apples for apples. So when you're comparing the medium remuneration for 2022 compared to what was in the report, it looks like it's gone down. However, CANZ has actually noted in the report it's gone up 11% which although that doesn't necessarily line up with the report because last year's included full-timers and part-timers, it does probably resonate with what I am seeing in my practice and hearing out there, not necessarily at all levels, but definitely at those junior levels and people entering the profession and us trying to hold on to people in the profession, they're definitely getting paid more and the cost of living's increased. So damn, we really needed to get paid more because we're already underpaid for the good work that we do as an industry. But CANZ had in their sort of summary at the beginning that of the report, or not that beginning of the report where you go to download it, that this 11% growth apparently confirms a career in the profession remains an attractive proposition during a skills shortage, which has increased competition for talent. Now, I have no real data that I can put my hands on, but what I'm going to say is I actually think that that increase is not because our industry is attractive or remains attractive, I think it's because we desperately need to pay people to stay because they're still exiting the industry if they even come here in the first time. We've got the lowest number of grads coming through year after year. That number is dropping and the fight for talent is increasing. So I don't think that that data is making our industry more attractive to stay in. I think it's just employers acting out of desperation. And what's really interesting is when you drill down by sector, and so the report splits all of this data out by public practice versus government versus corporate versus not-for-profit. In public practice, we actually went backwards. So last year, we had a median rim for public practice of 125,000, and this year it's 115. Yeah. So, yeah, like I know that, and it's not just, it is, I say anecdotal, but it's definitely happening we have certainly a demand for much higher salaries than we were kind of ready to pay, especially among our younger team members or that mid-range team member. It's just really interesting. And again, there's not enough context. There's not enough data for us to sort of speak with any more like granularity around it, but I found that interesting. So that 11% is coming from the other parts of our profession that you and I are not in. <laughs> That's right. And it's coming from very specific parts. And if we actually go in and look at that 
just jumping around the report a bit, the medium remuneration by years of experience. You talked about it before as well. You touched on it in your highlights, but that zero to four years experience full-time in Australia, the average remuneration is $77,000. So that's like people leaving uni, coming into the profession and filling this in or brand new CAs, people who know next to nothing, like four years in accounting is actually not that long. Like you can do some stuff, you can add up some things and reconcile balance sheet, but there's still a lot of things you can't do at that point. And that average remuneration at 77,000. Now I know that that was me a hundred years ago, but I sure wasn't getting paid $77,000 back then. So that's increased, what is it? $6,000 from last year. And then the five to 10 bracket also increased about four or $5,000 from last year. So this is based on the levels of experience, but then the people in the middle, so that 11 to 20 years kind of stayed the same. And then all the people right at the top, they've had pay cuts. So this is this interesting redistribution of wealth where the people at the top have actually had to take pay cuts to pay the staff at lower levels in the organization or less experience, more money, which makes sense because we're paying people more, but I'm not convinced that we're actually charging our clients enough money to be able to pay more money. So if those people at the top are going to want to continue to get paid well or put their pay back up, there's actually going to have to be a whole value shift, which is a whole other conversation in our industry, particularly in the profession around how we place and position our services because this is not sustainable, even just on an ego point. You know, the people at the top aren't going to want to cut their salaries for that long to pay the people who've just entered the organisation. Thanks to Ada for supporting this episode of Reality Check. Ada's AI platform helps accountants scale advisory services across your entire client base. Using their technology will allow anyone in your team to have meaningful data-driven conversations allowing you to increase your revenue and deliver quality advice that your clients actually need. Ada's AI system can automatically detect and notify you of upcoming cash flow falls and unexpected tax bills. Sign up for a free trial of Ada today so that you're one step closer to offering great advice to all of your clients. Totally. And I would love to see that you know, I was just talking about that one pager for the gender pay gap, but I'd love to see a one pager on public practice. Let's remove the noise of the rest of the, like just for our own completely selfish reasons. But I'd be so interesting because I was listening to Cloud Accounting Podcast. I talk about America, obviously, but they did their sort of industry REM stuff. And what they saw was that the doers, so accountants, and I'll say this respectfully, you know, I love you. The doers were screaming out for pay rises and they got like not even CPI or 3.7, kind of like the what the ABS reported a couple of weeks ago, but the partners were taking home significantly more money. So there was this whole beef around, well, the firms have done well because COVID was freaking hard, but the firms were doing well because this kind of reversion to compliance work, which we definitely saw here. So if you have a look at the stats from the top 100, the AFR top 100 that came out, definitely said that if you you lent into compliance, that's how you grew. If you were never, I don't want to like distract from the fact that we do need to diversify from just putting numbers in a box. But anyway, if you were just advisory, you kind of went backwards, but that sort of mid range, excluding the top four, excluding the that sort of mid top of the mid tier, if you like, the firms did really well. The firms had record years and there's no doubt that those partners took home buckets and buckets of cash because that's 
how those firms are structured, right? Yep. And so we're definitely seeing that catch up where the firms are like, oh, yes, oh, look at this stuff, demanding more money. Well, uh, yeah, because they also had a hard time producing all the work that's now filling your pockets. So I, again, I say this respectfully because I know you're a partner and you're beautiful and it's different. <laughs> but generally speaking, especially across that demographic of firm, I just would love to see some more granularity from the CA data to see whether we can validate that rant that I just made or, you know, to your point with it, partners across what demographic of firm are partners potentially taking a pay cut and stuff yeah, like that. Absolutely. And the firms, I would agree, and Paul Myers is going to love me saying this, but the firms that really lent in well into compliance in the last couple of years, but more importantly, charged for it would have done great because that's all we did the last couple of years. If you put all the grant work and all of that into a bucket saying that was compliance because it was government driven, then that was a lot of compliance work that we had to do. But in saying that, I saw all the Facebook forums. I know even here because we did that. We were trying to get grants for people who are hemorrhaging money, desperately trying to keep their staff. And, you know, I have these projects that I work on and the team calls them my bleeding heart projects. And like these people, they just got me for free because- they don't have any money. And it's like, in my mind, I sat back and I had a look at it. I'm like, it's, it is more important for me to keep these businesses up and running so that after COVID, they go back to being great businesses as opposed to ripping them blind. Now, I don't know if the same level of compassion exists at all levels. And also, I'm not trying to say that I always did the right thing as well. Sometimes maybe I should have charged more during COVID, but seriously, like particularly at the beginning, we did a lot of grant work for free or very, very discounted. We were just covering our costs. So I think that those firms that did well in compliance and charged absolutely would have been super profitable in the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. I think we should stop talking about this so we don't continue to feed Paul's confirmation <laughs> because I just couldn't bear that. I couldn't bear another conversation with our friends about that. So I, <laughs> oh, and I'm laughing at myself because I was reading this while the girls were doing a jigsaw puzzle and I was right next to them and I literally had to get out of my chair and I was deep breathing and they were like, are you okay, mum? Like, are you having some kind of episode? And I was like, no, I just read the phrase, the profession's attempt to close the gender pay gap. And I lost it. I just lost it. And I couldn't help but think of my Star Wars friend, Yoda, who was like, I'm going to get it wrong, but I think he says something to the effect of either do or do not. There is no try. Like, I don't believe in try. You're either doing it or you're not. So this idea about the profession and their attempt recently to close the gender pay gap, I just, there's a few things that I've seen. And look, this is from my perspective. This is my opinion. I have bias. Clearly, I'm a female who has grown up in the public practice space, who has gone through some stuff that is absolute discrimination and it's not fair and I see it happening to other people and I believe that it's real clearly. I think a a year four kid could validate the gender pay gap and so no, we won't get into who believes and who doesn't believe right now because I'm literally, my head's going to explode. But I was thinking about some of the things that I've seen over the course of the year and whether actually would I consider it a genuine attempt to actually close or do anything around the gender pay gap. So I've seen a lot of actually great leadership 
from parts of our big four, which I respect so much. And I'm going to get the people's names wrong and all of that stuff because I just can never find the individuals who are actually responsible for this. But, you know, Deloitte do so much in this space. And yes, we need to have targets, especially at that level of corporate. Absolutely, you need to. If you don't measure it, it doesn't get done. So I've loved seeing stuff like that. But what I've also seen is I think it was in June, the AFR likes to celebrate all of the new partners from the big firms. And we saw, bless, BDO, 37 new partners. Guess how many were female? Five. Less than 30%. And less than 30% new partners is not going to start to correct the massive gap that they've got already. GT was the same. Five out of 12 were female. I'm just furiously trying to find my little graph that tells where they're currently sitting. Here we go. GT's not on there. BDO, 33% two years ago. So adding 30% is not going to start to crack that. PKF, no women. No women were promoted. How about that? And so I think there was also, I certainly had some optimistic views coming out of COVID. I think it's reasonable to expect that because of what we all went through and how many of our firms were forced to do things differently, be agile, work from home, be flexible, all of that sort of stuff. I thought, great, so many of these firms are going to learn that, do you know what, nobody fell off a cliff. The business didn't die. In fact, the business did phenomenally well. Oh, perhaps we don't need to micromanage people. Perhaps we don't need to nine to five. Perhaps we can do all these things that we've been so scared to do and things that happen to be massive barriers to women progressing in firms, to women staying in the profession, to dads wanting to go and do more dad things, all of those things. But I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing a more strong reversion to the way that we've always done it. So none of those downstream barriers, I don't think, have been removed. But then I see stuff like, and I just this is the really beautiful, promising stuff that I see. I can't remember who posted it, but they were sharing. Her story was that male-dominated firms drove her to a 13-year break from accounting and that she's tried again and she's in a firm where she feels supported and respected as a person Her passion has come back and she's not just a number. Her opinion is valued and she finally feels like she belongs. And I hear stories like that and I think, yes, yes, we're doing things. This is amazing. But then again, oh, golly, the AFR report's on the top 100. And it's celebrating the fact that we're up to 27% of women in leadership. The rest of the story goes, It's only 27% of partners in the top 100 that are female and 25 of the 100 firms have no women in leadership. And these are not one partner firms. No, Just just so we're clear, just so our friends don't come and say, oh, Shay, but so many firms are run by one partner that happens to be a man. You can't diversify that. I hear you, but that's not what we're talking about. And so... I was almost triggered by this idea that we've been attempting to do better and I don't want to take away from those that have lent in and that are doing amazing things. But as a profession, I'm not seeing the tide change and I'm upset, (laughs) clearly. Yeah, and you have all right to be upset. And again, I come at this with bias because I am a female in the profession, but I've probably had 
more years working with great men in the profession than you had yeah. the privilege or, you know, to be able to. So my my reactions are a little bit tempered, but I still get quite upset about certain things. But when I look at this report, when I look at whether or not men versus women, and this is the way they put it in here, like who believes that there is a gender pay gap? So only half, about half of the people surveyed believe there's a gender pay gap. And then when you split that between women and men, 72% of women believe that there's a gender pay gap, only 31% of men. Now, you immediately look at that and all the angry side of me wants to go in there. Well, of course, they don't think that there's a gender pay gap because they can't look beyond what is going on in their own world. But then I pull back and I think about the conversations that I do have with some men out there. So, you know, some of those great men that I work with. So let's talk about James Solomons, who was my first business partner, absolute stellar human being, John Knight, now managing director at Business Depot. These men, and I don't know how they would or would not answer this survey. I'm not putting words into their mouths, but I could imagine if they actually did know, it wouldn't be no because they blinded by things, but they probably would look back and be like, well, we have a very equal workplace. I can't imagine that out there, it's still a huge problem because sometimes when you're doing good and you're surrounded by great things, you don't realize how bad it can be out there. So I would love to understand better the demographic behind how these people responded or even more so, well, why? Why don't you think there is? When the data is telling you different, what is it that tells you inside that there is not a pay gap? I'd love to understand that more. But in a way where I'm being told in a nice, calm manner, not like what happened a lot last year where people who questioned this were just yelled at because that doesn't help anything. So I'd love, you know, nice, calm conversations about it. And then when we move on from there, you talked a lot about this desire or this hope that you had coming out of COVID, things would be more equal because we can't lie about this. Women's career gaps, the majority of women who take big career gaps or any career gaps is because of family matters. So what was it? 76% of women took a career break because of parental leave, whereas men who took a career break, 51% of it took it for travel. So when you're having a look at this, we're taking a lot of time off because we're having families. So just based on that, flexible work environments helps get us and keeps like back in the workforce and keep us in the workforce. And when you get paid more as you work your way up, the longer that we work somewhere, the more we're able to contribute, then the more we will get paid. So these things are there. But what really interested me is that was not the top suggestion from members responding to this report about how you could improve the gender pay gap. I honest to goodness thought that this flexible workplace would be at the top of that list, but it's about number four or five. And the things that are actually at the top of the list are all about transparency in an organization and an organization looking internally at themselves. So publishing, you know, what are those, the pay that people are getting paid. Now, the majority of the gender pay gap is at the top level, that big 50K last year. Was it senior manager or partnership level? That's where it's sitting. It's at the level where you're remunerated a little bit differently. It's not just based on his experience or qualification. It's based on what you can negotiate in your annual salary review. So it's, so it's based on different things. So 
if there was transparency, so I'm thinking back to times where it was a long time ago when I wasn't my own boss, when I've had to go into bat for my own salary, I don't think I very often, if ever, actually asked for my pay rise. I just trusted in the people above me would do the right thing and pay me based on what I deserved. And I don't, and I've had lots of conversation with women and I've read lots of stuff to say that that without being super sexist, is an inherently female trait because this is the way we were raised. We were raised this way and shrugging off anything from what has been ingrained in you for, you know, on my end, 40 plus years is not easy. So if we weren't given amazing negotiation skills and we weren't taught to really fight for, you know, pay and, and this as we're growing up, I'm probably taught a little bit more to just sit back and it's and I'm the average accountant. We're the average accountant, this age bracket and we're the ones that weren't given the skills and no wonder there's a pay gap. So if there's transparency and if I know the guy sitting next to me is getting paid $50,000 more than me for the exact same job, then you can bet all of a sudden I have that fire in my belly to go fight. Yeah, I hear you. Absolutely. I actually fully agree. There's a couple of things that are coming up while I'm listening to you and it reminds me of, I think it was like, maybe it was when I was in the zero to four bucket, right? Probably closer to the four than the zero. And I remember getting so irritated by the firm that I worked in, just doing good was never good enough. You always had to be seen as something else. And what I mean by that is perception mattered more than reality. This irritated me beyond belief. So I remember at the time I was doing my CA, I used to come in at like stupid o'clock in the morning, I mean like five, because I didn't have the headspace to study after work. So I would get my study done, I'd do my work, but it meant I was cooked by 5 p.m., right? So I'd go home at five. And what did it, at that point, that firm was all white blokes running the firm, right? All they saw was me going home at five. So of course that's not acceptable. That's not good enough. You're not a hard worker. Nothing to do with the quality of my work, nothing to do with the quality of my stakeholder engagement, none of that stuff. It was just this perception thing. It used to annoy me so much. I didn't think it was fair. I just remember my manager saying to me, we need to help you. You are doing great, all of this. We need to help you with that because whether we like it or not, it's real. I remember my uncle saying to me at the time, you don't have to, I know you don't want to facilitate politics. You think politics is BS, blah, blah, blah. But if you don't learn the skills to navigate it, then you will not survive. And this kind of comes up for me when you're talking about how to negotiate pay rise, right? Because I think you're right. And if we revert back to somewhere where I think we should be, it should be that our firms, our organisations have the mechanisms within them to make sure that your lack of confidence around asking for a pay rise is irrelevant, that coming into that, there should already be a place where you should be and there should be people whose job it is to make sure that bias doesn't interfere. And this is what happens in larger firms. They're called bans. I'm sure you have bans in your firm and this is part of the way that things, are, you know, they're supposed to bring equality. But what we know is that if we actually audited that data, that we'd have a pink end at the bottom and a blue end at the top. That's just the way what we would see. And so I understand about transparency, but I also think that as a firm, as a whole, if we were asked to do things like they have to do in the UK, where you have to do a mandatory, you have to report your gender pay audit stuff, then what gets measured gets done. It would start to shift because it would just not be acceptable. 
the other thing you said about career break, and this has always kind of annoyed me. So if we think about how many women we have available to us in, in the industry. So we know the industry is 54% female, CAs, we have 43. So let's just call that roughly 50%, right? Mm. This is going to annoy someone, but let's just call it roughly 50. We take a break. Yep. But doesn't that mean that on the ladder climbing, we might just be a bit slower because we took a break? It doesn't mean we come back and we have half a brain. It doesn't mean we come back and we don't know how to do our jobs, but we fall off of this cliff because we still only have 27% of female representation in leadership. So I actually don't buy the career break stuff. I don't necessarily buy it as a reason for why we have under, we don't have enough women in leadership. I don't buy that. What I think happens is after that, we need better conditions to help us life because, and this is a huge generalization. And before I say this, I am going to have, give a massive shout out to all of my dad friends that genuinely carry some load at home. And I know everyone's on their own path to this and within the way that people structure their families is their business. And if you have a traditional breadwinner role and that's how your family works and you have a great situation where maybe mum can stay home, power to you. That's great. All good. What I'm talking about is that generalized place of, do you know what? Mum and dad probably work full time, both of them. But mum also cooks, mum also cleans, mum picks up the kids, mum drops the kids off, mum has all of the mental load for everything. This is what I'm talking about. So I don't think necessarily it's about the break itself. It's about what needs to happen at work to make sure we can keep running at leadership once we've come back from break. That's yep. my that's my personal, personal view. So I don't think men taking more parental leave is the answer. I think I would love to see more dads getting to be the dad they want to be because I actually genuinely see pain with lots of our, especially our young dads, because they want to do more of that stuff. They don't want to miss that stuff out. But never mind it being a barrier for women, but if Jesus' dad takes time off work, whoa, you know, there's a huge set of bias and stigma that is around that that should be absolutely blown to smithereens. It's absolutely absolute bullshit. And that's been around for a long time. If it makes you feel any better, though. I'm witnessing a forced change. So mm. at that lower level, or not lower level, I hate saying that and I sound like such a snob when I say that, but at the more junior levels in our organisation where I'm watching these men and women have families, and I'm sure it's not everywhere, but we have that ability, particularly here, for them to take the time that they need. So I love being able to see men lean into a parental leave if they need to or do the running around for their families or spend the time with their kids when they need to just as much as the women can. And I think that will become very, very important moving forward for the next generation of people who come through our firms because family issues are more focused. And don't forget, we've just come out of COVID where everybody was in lockdown together. So, you know, these pe- these relationships got to build. Then my family is a bit of a flip on its head. So I work full time, I run this firm and my husband stays at home. But 
during those periods of time where I got locked down with my family and got to reignite really great relationships with my kids that maybe I didn't have because Adam was doing the whole missed family and I was doing Mrs. Work. So I didn't get to do that. And being able to get to know my kids again, I haven't wanted to come back to the office full time. And I can just imagine that, you know, you know, just because we're women doesn't mean that we're automatically more emotional or attached to our children. I can imagine all the amazing dads out there want to spend more time with their kids as well, particularly if they've gotten that same opportunity I had to reignite relationships with their kids, which is why when you look at this REM report as well, so then in here it talked about important factors beyond remuneration by country and by age. And across the board in all countries, both genders, and all ages, flexible work options is right up there at the top. So it wasn't up there at the top for this gender pay gap stuff. It was near the top, but not right at the top. It is absolutely up there as an important item for us. And, you know, if we don't get on board with this, we're going to have real trouble. Forget the 11% pay rises. We're going to have real trouble keeping people interested in our industry. Because everywhere I look, people are leaning into work from home. And it doesn't mean that you have to fully have a firm where no one comes into the office. We still have people come into the office because, you know, we need to see each other. We need the water cooler chat. We need to learn. We need to grow. We need to be around each other. But it's flexible. That's the important thing. I totally agree. And I can't help but be struck by the bit of hypocrisy, right? So remember years and years and years ago when we even used the word cloud and it was cool. Now it's just a no-brainer. I remember the guy and it was probably, oh, I'm going to forget his name. Oh, my God. He's married to Sally and they travel everywhere. And then, Wayne. Wayne. Wayne Schmidt. You know, yeah. I'm on the beach with my laptop. I can run my firm. And we see so much of that and we see a lot of, oh, yeah, we're that kind of firm. We do cloud. Look at us. But actually are the practices that sit around the way you utilize that technology actually change? I don't think. And I think we are undercooking that. We've got so much more opportunity to do that better and it can support all of our humans in our firms. I think that's the most important thing. The thing that I think about, and I'm going to just be very gentle here because as you mentioned before, many of us were on the receiving end of, for want of a better phrase, getting yelled at over this last year, which I thought was disgraceful and incredibly unfair. So I can't even imagine what the team at the CA had to endure also. I imagine they copped it from the same people we copped it from, but I also imagine they copped it from their very influential gee whiz. They probably copped it from the all the humans that have the actual power that sit around that organization. Do I have to say it out loud? It's the very senior men, big four, et cetera, et cetera. This data can't be right. This is offensive. This feels like a threat to my entitlement, blah, 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 blah. So I just want to be gentle when I say this. I I read more needs to be done by the profession to deal with the gender pay gap. And I fully agree. Like we've just been ham, like literally smashing this topic. But what I think is that this is actually an opportunity for the CA to get together with the CPA, to get together with the IPA, all the PAs, all the A's, in the similar way that they did around mental health, right? Come together, you know, help lift the profession in terms of their mental health literacy and agility and resilience and all that sort of stuff and actually do some stuff that has teeth. I liked the playbook. Certainly I've referenced it a lot so that this is the narrowing the gender pay gap playbook that the CA put out last year. but it, had no teeth, had no teeth. 
there is actually an opportunity for all of our professional bodies to lean into that space where they literally exist to help the profession with these things to add significant value. And so if we step back and think at a macro level, we have a talent issue in our profession. Currently 54% of the profession are female and we have a massive barrier to keeping and attracting them, which is the fact that they get paid $48,000 a year less than blokes, I think maybe this might be top of the list to try and resolve. And so what I would actually love to see is I come together and let's put something together with teeth. If that means that, for example, in the UK, there's a level of organisation generally, not just firms, but organisations, I think over, I'm going to get it wrong, over 200 staff, you have a mandatory reporting obligation around your gender pay gap. You have to do the audit. You have to report it. I think it's publicly available. And look, I would be leaning into this because it's a huge competitive advantage and it's really big for your employee value proposition. Anyway, imagine if our professional bodies came together and did something similar here and said, okay, firms, everyone that has more than four partners, for example, you need to do this audit and tell us about it every year. It's mandatory. It's important. What gets measured gets done. And what we'd also be able to see from stuff like that is not just a suggestion from individuals about what might work. I mean, clearly we can see here that 51% of respondents think that if we had more women in leadership, then the pay gap would be smaller. This is definitely going down as Captain Obvious because I think my nine-year-old could do this without a working sheet and greater pay transparency, all of that sort of stuff. I think that, you know, that could just have such a meaningful impact. I just would like to see some teeth. I'd like to see, I know we had some advocacy, but I want to see some teeth. I have more expectation. And my concern now is that, again, we've talked a little bit about this in previous episodes, that the actual power dynamic within the CA, I can't speak for the CPA or the other organisations, still actually sits with potentially those people that aren't invested in making this better because it feels like a threat to their entitlement. And I just, it breaks my heart a little bit and I am concerned. I mean, I guess this is a bit of an opportunity. I don't know these humans. I would love to be wrong. I would love for someone to say, Shay, you're so wrong. This guy is amazing. This guy is amazing. He's a huge advocate. He's this, he's that. He's Joe Considine, who we lost last year, who I absolutely love. He's all of those things, but I don't know. And so I'm just concerned. And I guess this may be a little challenge to our professional bodies. If you're looking for a way to really, really, really help with talent in the accounting industry, let's address the gender pay gap. Let's insert some teeth and see what could happen. Yeah, look, I agree. I'd say as well, sometimes not necessarily that people might be concerned about losing their privilege, But if something doesn't impact you, it's hard to put it on your radar as being really important. If it's not impacting your day-to-day or it doesn't impact people in your life who haven't witnessed someone be impacted by it, it's really, really hard to take it seriously. So we need the people who have been impacted, who are suffering from it or have suffered from these things to be the ones who are involved in leadership around making decisions and how this plays out in the next little bit so that we're not sitting here in 10 years and saying, hey, guess what? we've got another 2% down on the pay gap because that's how long it will take. And that's just not good enough. Yeah. So the captain obvious, I think that which is where we end is just wrapped up better transparency. Like if you want to know how to do better on this, then 
monitor and get reporting from the firm so we can see the ones who did better and ask them what they actually did because it's evidence-based, isn't it? Data and evidence. Yeah, I love that. Such a good topic. I knew this is why I was so excited about it. As much as I get upset about it, I think all of us have such an opportunity to do better here. And I hear you about if it doesn't affect you, you don't care. But I don't know, I haven't met one firm recently that isn't struggling with capacity and talent. And so I just can't encourage everyone enough just to think outside the box here. And and absolutely, please, if I'm wrong, if there's anything that Beck and I have shared today where you're like, you're dead wrong and I have some facts to back that, please, I want to be wrong. I want to be wrong on so much of this stuff. But my experience tells me that I'm maybe closer to the other way. But anyway, great chat, Beck. Thank you. I think we were pretty balanced. <laughs> That's not really up to us to decide. It's up to all of you to decide. So we'd love your feedback, particularly around this topic. And look, it would also be great if, if you're in a firm that is doing amazing things, share it, shout it out. Let's help other people learn from amazing things that are working ahead of our membership bodies getting together and doing things that we can actually leverage in this space. It is time for you to go back. It is. It is. I'm rushing up. Last time I was rushing off to the airport. Now I'm rushing off to a meeting. You can tell I have two jobs, right? Yeah. It's up being popular. So lovely to see you and we will talk to you all later. Bye everybody. Thank you again to all of our fabulous listeners. Beck and I would absolutely love to hear from you. We would love your ideas, your feedback, all of it bring it you can find me on twitter at shayfire that's s-h-a-y-e-t-h-y-e-r and on linkedin shayfire and you can find me at linkedin and twitter at rebecca mahalik which is r-e-b-e-c-c-a-m-i-h-a-l-i-c have a great day from the trenches 